everybody, this is Chuck Marone. The interview you're going to hear today is with a guy named Patrick Deneen, and uh, I'm just absolutely thrilled about this. I included Patrick in my book, quoted from him a couple of times. His work has deeply influenced me, particularly you know when you get outside of the kind of rigorous Strongtown's financial analysis and start saying, okay, how do we end up here and what do we do? Patrick Deneen has helped me uh, fill in a lot of those gaps. So you're in for a real treat today. If you're inspired by this, go get Patrick's book, Why Liberalism Failed. And when you're doing that, go get my book too, Strong Towns, The Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. Take care. You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. For those of you that have been around for a while, you know that I'm an avid reader. I publish a list of my best books of the year every December. And last year, my number one book was a book called Why Liberalism Failed by a guy named Patrick Deneen. And, and when I posted this, uh, I, I shared it on Twitter and I said, I, I really love this book. And then all of a sudden, this guy named Patrick Deneen tweeted at me and said, hey, I like Strong Towns. And by the way, we met. And I'm like, no way. So uh, we've been chatting and Patrick has agreed to come on uh, the podcast. Uh, Patrick Deneen, uh, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Chuck. It's nice to uh, virtually meet you again. I, I'm very happy about it. Let, let me just before we get into this, let people know um, you're a professor of political science you hold the David A. I can't say that name. Potenziani. Potenziani. Yeah. Uh, Memorial yeah. College Chair of Constitutional Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Um, you've got a couple other books: The Odyssey of Political Theory, Democratic Faith, and uh, have done a lot of writing. You're in London now as part of uh, your work for Notre Dame. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I want to tell you why I didn't read the book for a long time, because it was recommended to me. But I, I mistakenly assumed that it was a liberalism as in the modern way we talk about liberal and conservatives. And I figured, well, I, I don't need a heaping helping of confirmation bias as to why to be a little bit skeptical of progressives. Um, but I kept having this book recommended to me, including by, by the way, Barack Obama, who wrote a blurb for you, uh, saying there's a great book. What, 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 uh, what do you mean by liberalism? Let's just start there so that we can get everybody listening on the same page. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, when you hear the word, you, you kind of tend to think it, it means, you know, people who are on the left side of the political spectrum, so-called progressives or left liberals. Uh, by, by liberalism, I actually mean much more the sort of philosophical, political project of modernity, we could call it broadly. Um, so a political project um, that really, uh, you know, in, I guess to put it in a nutshell, um, moves, uh, moves the way we think about politics and even more broadly society as, the, um, as organized out of discrete uh, autonomous individual holes, uh, cap, you know, W-H-O-L-E-S. Uh, that is to say, individuals come together and consent to make a government. So, you know, it's kind of there in the Declaration of Independence, government by consent, 
Um, uh, but but it seems to me that that this kind of philosophic revolution has a whole series of implications um, that we really see now manifesting themselves in our world, uh, and really, it seems to me. Um, culminates in a society in which we can no longer really think together or talk together about something that we hold together in common. I, I, I think for me, the most profound part of this book was the understanding of basically the self-making self and the role of the individual and the state in this project of liberalism. Can you Talk a little bit about those concepts as a way to get to the, the conversation I want to have with you, which is about community. Sure. Um, well, so the, the, the architects of this liberal project, and, and again, I mean this in the really broadest philosophical um, systemic sense, um, they begin with a kind of conceit, um, a kind of fantasy about what human beings are by nature. And human beings are understood to be by nature sort of autonomous choosing selves, these creatures in the, in the state of nature, who come together sort of through the mechanisms of self-interest and agree basically to form a society that will basically exist to protect their individual rights. And the only purpose of our coming together really is to secure our individual rights. So you could say the only thing we have in common is our our shared agreement that we want to have nothing in common, if I could put it that way. Right. Now, now what, we, what we actually know is that this doesn't really describe human beings very well in reality. I mean, we're, we're embedded in all kinds of relationships, obviously starting with the one that we don't choose, the, the, you know, the parents, the mother who bears us, or you know, the parents uh, that we grow up with, or um, uh, the communities we happen to be born into, so the neighbors that we have, the communities that we happen to be raised in, uh, the, the broader regions we're a part of, the watersheds, we, whether we know it or not, uh, that we're contributing water to. And, you know, all of these, these webs of relationships that define our reality. The argument and really thesis of my book is that as as this philosophy of liberalism unfolds, as this logic kind of unfolds, we become more and more like the creatures that are imagined in theory, uh, that don't really exist anywhere in fact, and that to create the conditions that actually make us into these free, autonomous, independent individuals, ironically, we actually don't find these people in nature. We actually have to kind of create conditions that make it possible for us to live lives largely separate, largely as individuals. And the big architecture that we need for that especially is provided in the first instance by an increasingly encompassing state that grows and waxes as individuals are freed from each other, that more and more of the things we might have relied for on our families or on our neighbors or communities or churches have to be taken over by the mechanisms of the state. And at the same time, we see also the expansion of the market as the other sphere uh, that creates the architecture for our liberty, the freedom to choose whatever life we want to leave to be these self-making selves. And the ultimate irony of these massive architectures of state and market to create these individuals is that we end up feeling powerless. So the freer we are, the less we feel we control the mechanisms of our liberty, the mechanisms of our individuality. And I think right now we're seeing this kind of political crisis all across the West, all across liberal democracies, in which people have become almost completely and thoroughly free of each other. 
and yet feel that they no longer control the mechanisms that were sort of created and, and enlarged uh, to, to uh, create the conditions of their, of their independence. I'm doing an event uh, tomorrow, actually, with Tim Carney, who's going to be here in Minnesota. And I just finished, I, I read, reread his book, his latest book, and he talks about the, in there the lack of community as being kind of the thing that in his frame, uh, you know, here's, here's places that voted for Trump, here's places that didn't, both very conservative. What is the difference? And his, his, his argument is it's the lack of community. What, what, how does community uh, fit as like an opposite pole of this liberalism project? Uh, and, and, and I ask this because I think we often think of the polls as being, you know, the left of center pole and the right of center pole. And we've got conservatives and we've got progressives and they square off against each other. Um, but you're describing a world where there's kind of a, for lack of a better word, like a centralizing pole. And then is it a localizing poll? Is it a community poll? Like what's the other poll? Well, yeah, I guess, um, I guess I regard what you're describing as the, the typical left right divide. One of which sort of the left we typically think of as more statist, right? Desiring state solutions, uh, to political social problems. Whereas the right, you know, we just saw the passing of David Koch, you know, the right is typically will rely upon market mechanisms um, you know, sort of the Adam Smith's invisible hand that will solve uh, and using market forces to solve problems. In the in the in my book, I actually argue that these these two, what we think about is these two poles actually kind of work hand in glove together, and they, in fact, are two mechanisms that allow us to live lives that are increasingly depersonalized. Um, they're kind of depersonalized mechanisms that liberate us from the kinds of direct obligations that we might um, accumulate and even embrace when we're parts of a community. So, you know, this seems to me community, we can be all warm and fuzzy about community, but community's hard, right? Because it has, when you live in a community, there are certain demands that go with community. Um, taking care of people who may not be able to take care of themselves so well, right? The elderly or the infirm or small children. Um, and that part of the condition of our liberty is to free ourselves from these very direct obligations that we might have to other people. We, in our politics, we debate which mechanism is the best depersonalization mechanism. Is it the state or the market? But if we think back over the last 50, even 100 years, both the state and the market have increased in scope and scale and dominion. It's not one or the other. It's really both of them have arisen at the same time that we've seen the kind of unfolding of this of this individual, uh, liberated individual self. So I think there's really the poles that we think about politically are actually false poles. And what's missing is this idea and what I would say ideal of community uh, in which we learn, you know, we, we learn the capacity to both um, exhibit forms of gratitude for the inheritances that we might have for the, the ways people have fulfilled obligations to us, but also as a matter of that gratitude, take on forms of obligation um, as we become uh, capable of doing so, as we reach the age of maturity um, and the, have the capacity to do that. 
I was thinking as I was, I was, I was reading the book the first time I was thinking about the movie, it's a wonderful life and how, you know, if we were to film that today or re redo that today, uh, would it be completely different? Could, could that even basically be a movie today? Because you have this guy who at every point in his life feels these kind of constraints or these pulls, these obligations that he has to other people uh, and to other like local institutions. And he basically gives up of himself in order to fulfill those. And, and, and at the end, you know, there's the triumphal moment where he, he, you know, realizes the value of life, but it's that struggle. Like, what have I done with my life? Is, is this, is, is this what you're describing here? Is that, is that a good kind of metaphor for the, uh, the, the way we've kind of set up American life and Western life today? Yeah, I, I'm actually fascinated by the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, don't get me started because I could go <laughs> for hours uh, talking about this movie. I've actually written I've written a fair amount about this movie. Oh, really? Um, yeah, uh, and you know, we this is something I think this, we're an area where we begin our, our interests really begin to collide because I think there's a real sort of built environment aspect of the movie that's really important. What we notice that George Bailey at the beginning of the movie is kind of the modern man, right? He's the kind of post World War II. Uh, and of course, the the movies made begins before world war ii but really the movie is made after world war ii and he's the he's the kind of figure that is is the vision of the new america right if you remember from the movie what he says he wants to do is to become an architect and he wants to build big buildings a mile high and he wants to build large bridges a mile wide in other words he wants to be part of building the new america right the modern the fast the big the sprawling the, you know, this enormous scale, right? The, the vision of America that is in many ways, you could say, the America that we, that we increasingly live in today, an, an America of fast cars, of, of sprawling uh, and large buildings and so forth. And as you, as you point out, kind of fate conspires to keep him in this town, right? He's not able to escape. Every time he, think he's, he thinks he's going to get out, Fate conspires to keep him in his t in this town, and so he takes on these obligations over time. His father dies; he takes over the savings and loan. He takes you know takes on the obligation of being a father and a husband. But all the while, he's kind of discontent. He he really still wants to get out of Bedford Falls. And and on the one hand, you're right; the the movie ends with a kind of triumphant. He embraces his life. He recognizes that his life made a difference. But there's something really insidious at the conclusion of the movie which is that he's, as part of his project, his life's project, he hasn't created a skyscraper or a bridge. What he's created is the first suburb, right? His right. savings and loan has actually financed the first suburb outside of Bedford Falls. And so Bedford Falls is this really nice, I think you would recognize it as, a, as exactly the kind of strong town, right? Where people know each other. The built environment is one where you interact with your neighbors, you know your neighbors, right? There's a guy that comes out when George crashes into the tree and he says that, that his great-great-grandfather planted that tree, right? right. So this, is, this is a place of memory and a place where generations recollect uh, what's happened in the past. Whereas what we notice is that what George has done is he's channeled his modernist energies not into building the skyscraper, but building Bailey Park, right? The first suburb, the first post-war suburb, kind of a version of Levittown. And you have to imagine, this is the irony of the movie, that while... Well, when George runs into trouble, all of his neighbors come out to help him, right? They say, we didn't ask questions. We just knew George was in trouble and we were going to bring money and give it to you because we trust you and we know you. 
But we have to think that if George's children run into these kinds of problems growing up in a place like Bailey Park, like the suburbs, their neighbors won't know them. And they won't have the same kind of history with that place. They're likely to leave it once they go off to college and they'll never come back. So there's a kind of irony that George actually ends up kind of in a subtle way undermining the very thing that saves him, undermining Bedford Falls uh, that, that in some ways he saves and that saves him. And yet you have to imagine within a generation, Bedford Falls uh, may fall into disrepair. You say community is hard. I, I want to linger on that for a second because I, I feel like, and I, I don't want to get too Catholic on our audience here, um, <laughs> but you know, part of the, the Catholic faith and tradition is that you acknowledge and take on, and we see this in other faiths too. I mean, the Jewish faith is very much this way. Um, you take on this labor. You, you agree that like my life will be fulfilled by having these, these boundaries and these commitments uh, to more than just, you know, yourself and your own salvation, but to others. Uh, how is uh, that hard part of it? Um, actually the part that has the meaning. I, I think we're taught so many times that like the meaning is to be this self-making self, to build the bridge, to be the architect, to have uh, the grand end. Um, give, me the, give me the other argument. Wh why should we be looking at it a different way? Well, you know, it's uh, it, you mentioned about Catholicism. One of the really interesting things about Catholicism, I'm a Catholic, I teach at Notre Dame, um, is that the expectation is, as a Catholic, that you go to the church with, that's, that's in your geographic area. In other words, you're a member of a church because of where you are, not because of what priest you prefer or what congregation you prefer, uh, but rather it's a matter of where you happen to be. And this could result in, obviously, um, difficulties if you end up not liking your priest or not liking your fellow parishioners. Um, so it's not unusual in America to have Catholics end up go parish shopping. Uh, that's kind of a very Protestant thing to do, even right. shopping for, for a parish. But one of the consequences of, of um, in some ways, being required to be at the church, let's just say, you know, being in the place where you might be with people that you haven't entirely chosen because of your own preference, is it forces you to interact with people and circumstances that do raise challenges, right? It do, they do, in fact, raise uh, the difficulty of getting along with people, of um, you know, having to hear a message maybe from a priest that you don't especially like, but otherwise that might just, if you pick the parish you like, you'll never be challenged. You'll never hear the kind of message that um, you maybe don't want to hear. And it seems to me that, that this is, in some ways, this is an has had an insidious impact on, more broadly on our politics, where we basically go shopping for, the, for people who share the same opinions as us, right? where we can literally never have to interact with someone who disagrees with us so that we no longer are confronted with arguments that might make us uncomfortable or challenge some of our presuppositions. And it seems to me, and this is, you know, this is a point that Alexis de Tocqueville makes over and over again when he looks at democracy in America in the 1830s. He says he's quite amazed because democracy is a kind of practice of people coming together and being forced to confront arguments and people with whom they might disagree. And he says as a consequence, he says the heart is actually enlarged through the kind of practice or discipline of politics in this in this form. So I so I think that. Um, in a way, 
we tend to think in a non-geographic way, if I can put it that way. We, we, we seek to transcend places, just as we seek to transcend generations uh, and time. Uh, and, and, and kind of experiencing ourselves as the increasingly placeless people, and, and the internet and social media only exacerbates this, it seems to me has had a really bad um, effect on our politics, our social lives, our relational lives, um, and even our theological uh, our, our theological lives, if I can put it that way. Yeah. The, I, I, I listened to you on, on Ezra Klein's show, um, and I was very fascinated by the way you answered some of the questions. I, I'd encourage people listening to this to listen to that, because that's a, a very different interview than, than the chat we're having. But, but I want to give you a chance to respond uh, to the idea that, okay, Chuck, life is, life is hard, and you're saying... Uh, you know, you should live in the communities and work out these problems. But what if you're, uh, what if you're different? You know, what if you're uh, not a, a straight white male? You know, what if you're uh, a class that has found protection from having a larger state involved or uh, a less personalized existence? How would you, uh, Patrick Deneen, you know, discuss that aspect of modern America? Yeah, and of course, this is, this is one of the questions that Ezra uh, Klein posed to me, and uh, um, I think I had uh, probably a, uh, at least a serviceable answer. Uh, oh, no, I thought it was great. To yeah. To a difficult question. I'm not sure if I have as serviceable an answer at the moment. Um, um, but, uh, it, you know, it seems to me that uh, one of the ways that we have answered that question of what you do if you're, if you're different is to, in some ways, again— um, liberate us from all of the the actually genuinely diverse communities that we happened to live in and allow for us um, to live in sort of sub-communities, sub-gatherings um, in which we are constantly, our, our sort of, our, our presuppositions are confirmed, right? Um, you know, as you, as you mentioned, I'm in London right now. It would be really hard to go to a lot of places in London and not basically see, you know, rainbow flags everywhere, right? There's a kind of overwhelming agreement of the, uh, of the acceptability of homosexuality, gay marriage, and so forth. It's not as if we don't form communities that are going to have some kind of cohesive form. The question is, are you actually going to have genuine diversity? in those places are you going to be confronted with arguments, people, challenges um, that are going to potentially discomfort you. And it seems to me in our effort to answer the question, how do you make it possible for someone not to feel oppressed in any particular place? We've kind of gone, you could say, in a dangerous opposite direction, which is that you're always going to be comfortable in the place you happen to be. And you're not going to be confronted with people who are actually potentially quite different than you. And this is one of the ways that I think um, Tim Carney's book, you mentioned earlier, and a number of books, uh, Charles Murray's book, Coming Apart, and so forth, really point to that our politics today is not only a division of worldviews, it's increasingly a geographic division. Uh, it's increasingly two different countries occupying the same sort of geographic you know, nation's space but in which the interaction between people of different views is actually now constructed so that we are not, in fact, um, you could say, as a matter of our geographic reality, put into conversation with people of different views than ourselves. I, I want to get into that specifically 
because I, I feel like you, you wrote this whole chapter on the new aristocracy and it, it, it hit me really hard because I do live in, you know, the flyover country and, uh, I, you know, you in South Bend have certainly seen and experienced, uh, you know, not, not only, uh, despair and places that struggle, but also, you know, in the middle of this, this fantastic, you know, world renowned educational institution, uh, and the kind of the dichotomy there. I want to read just a little bit from page 149 of, I've got the paperback in front of me. We need this chapter about the new aristocracy. You say, our society is increasingly defined by economic winners and losers, with winners congregating in wealthy cities and surrounding counties, while losers largely remain in place, literally and figuratively, swamped by a global economy that rewards the highly educated cognitive elite while offering breadcrumbs to those left over in, quote, flyover country. How are, are we in essentially the late stage of this? I mean, we start with the George Bailey, uh, you know, self-making self as being the guy who, you know, has to settle for building the suburbs. We're now way advanced from that. And, and the idea of the individual has now become, as you say, the, the geographic. We can create a place for everybody, not just, you know, your own individual autonomy. Is, is this a late stage phase we're at right now? Or, you know, am I, am I reading something into it you're not suggesting? Well, I think, I think it has, uh, both the, I would say the potential to be and certain, um, certain earmarks that suggest that, that this may be in fact what we're seeing. Right. So if we think back, I talk about the rise of a new aristocracy, um, what we, what I begin by suggesting in that chapter is that when we think about liberalism, this project of liberalism, one of, one of its core ambitions was to overthrow the old aristocracy, right? Again, I'm, I'm in England right now, everywhere we see evidence of the old aristocracy, and yet they have been replaced by a new aristocracy. The, the old aristocracy was kind of the Downton Abbey aristocracy, people who had their position, their status, um, even their wealth as a result, literally, of, of inheritance, of, of the people to whom they were born. And your life prospects were defined by you know, uh, birth status uh, and familial uh, status. In many ways, liberalism was, was a, an effort and a very admirable effort to say, we're going to seek to displace this often unjust form of status as a result of familial um, uh, f familial identity. But in fact, it also proposed a new kind of leadership, and that leadership would be those who would be especially adept at living in what would be an increasingly placeless place, uh, 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 an economic order that would prize mobility and the ability um, to be um, displaced to move from place to place with, with rapidity, to have skills that were portable. Again, this is part of what I, what I, you know, for better or for worse, I'm engaged in teaching at a place like Notre Dame, which is it's almost less important what you major in than you gain the skills basically to live everywhere and nowhere, right? What uh, Wendell Berry once described, that the only major in college is upward mobility with a stress on mobility. And... It seems to me that right now what, where we've arrived at is a point not unlike the point at which the old aristocracy was regarded as in, increasingly unjust, 
right? The, the old aristocracy was seen as having its privileges on the basis of a completely arbitrary set of features, who you, who you happen to be born to. And I think that's increasingly the response to the new aristocracy, what we might call the meritocracy. And you're seeing this critique on both the left and the right, that the people who have done well in this world have done well not because of any particular virtue, but increasingly who they happen to be born to, right? Which allows you to get into the right schools, you know, even to manipulate the admissions process as we recently saw with these stars in Hollywood. Right. And, and I, so I think the legitimacy of this new aristocracy is increasingly in doubt. And there's a big debate taking place right now on whether or not something will have to arise in some senses to replace this new aristocracy. Well, you, you note in the book that, you know, we work to get rid of one system of injustice. And what we've really done is just supplanted it with perhaps a different system of injustice. Um, that begs the question, uh, and I, I, I'll say it in my terms and, and let you restate it in a way that uh, you would, but I've often asked the question, you know, where, where do you want your corruption? Where do you want your mm -hmm. injustice? Do you want it in some distant, faraway place that you have no ability to control or impact? Or do you want it here locally where you can be part of the solution? Is, is that, would you, I guess, would you concur with that? Is that, is that kind of how you reconcile that? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I don't think there's any perfect system. I don't think we're designed uh, as creatures that are going to create a utopian society. So, I, I, you know, in some ways, I think if we're going to if we're going to see some kind of a post-liberal future, it seems to me that in part it is to begin to cultivate a sense of greater obligation. That one of the things that I think liberalism has sought to dis, you know, sort of supplant a greater sense of interpersonal obligation. That it seems to me has to be ground in places. Um, so to, to cultivate a stronger sense of being in a place, of having some sense of rootedness, while also not, not seeking to, let's say, you know, emulate the older system of aristocracy where there was no way of exiting those, those societies. So I guess I would, I would put it in this way. We, we now live in a world in which the default, if we put it this way, the default is on exit, if I can, if I can use a, a social science way of talking about this, that if, when, when we're unhappy or discontent with a situation, our default in a liberal society is to look for the exits, right? It's to it's to see where the next better option might be, and and I would rather put the default on a kind of loyalty, uh, which doesn't preclude exit. You know, I, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't be able to exit relationships that happen to be really bad for us or exit places that are really, really bad for us. But the first default should be on loyalty. And, and, and the consequence, it seems to me, of loyalty is, well, I mean, to go back to the, to the example of George Bailey, that when, you know, George Bailey, who is obviously, you know, probably the most talented person in his town, who in today's world would not stay in Bedford Falls, right? He would, he would be the first person to get out go off to Harvard, get a job in finance, you know, live his life in the suburbs of New York City and retire and die in Florida. He would never go back to Bedford Falls. So that, you know, having a sense of loyalty is to say, you know, this place from which I came, I have some kind of obligation to this place. And in turn, this place has some kind of an obligation to me. So that when George Bailey runs into trouble, as he does when his uncle loses his money, the bank's money, he's able to call upon the community for assistance. Uh, so part of our problem today, it seems to me, is that we've we've 
sort of um, strip mined all of the talent from all these places all across the country and the world, and we put them into these very specific, often urban settings, and said, you know, you're free to pursue your own good and your own desires. And you can sort of compensate for any bad conscience by being a good progressive, which is, <laughs> tends to be the case in most of these places. And I think this is a very bad way of organizing uh, a society in which we're going to sustain some sense of common good. There's a, you just reminded me of uh, a line in the Lord of the Rings movies. I don't know if you are a fan of those books and movies. I'm, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the books for sure. Yeah. The okay. Movies are pretty good. Yeah. Um, I, I actually have an annual tradition of watching them. Uh, and there's a, I watched them with my daughter this last year, and there's this one scene in the second movie um, where it's pretty clear that they're all going to die because uh, they're surrounded by orcs and like the they're in the the stronghold and and they say to Aragorn, you know, these you're all going to die, and he says, well, I'll die as one of them, and that has always struck me as being kind of this uh, old fashioned way of thinking, right? Um, you know, something we honor and something we look at and like, yeah, you know, these are his, in a sense, his kin, he's, he's, you know, mankind with them and he'll die with them. Uh, but, but we've lost that, haven't we? I mean, I, I look around at my neighbors and, and it is, uh, there's a little bit of shame attached in my little town if you stay after high school. Hmm. Um, and there's, I had spent years cause I came back after college I spent years explaining to people like, no, no, I have a professional degree. Like <laughs> I have a job, you know, I, I, I left, I came back um, because it was such an odd thing. If anyone with talent or skills would be expected to leave. Uh, yeah. Um, I often say to my students um, who come from all over the country and the world to a place like Notre Dame, I say to them that, you know, the one sign that they will have failed in their life's quest and career is if they end up back in their hometown, you know, unless they happen to grow up in New York City or Chicago or L.A. or something, or, or London for that matter. And I always mean that as a joke, but my students kind of, you know, they, of course, look at me as if that's, this is plainly obvious, uh, that this, right. is, um, th this, is, this is an obvious thing. But then, but then I, I try to make a serious point um, about this fact, I, I asked them, at least pose the following question. I said, where, you know, you, you're obviously people of talent and ability. You don't get into a, an institution like Notre Dame without exhibiting certain kinds of features and qualities that set you apart from many of your peers. Where is it that you think you're likely to do more good for your community? Is it Washington, D.C.? Or is it the town or the place, you know, where, wherever it is you happen to come from, wherever that might be? Uh, where is it that your talents um, are likely to really directly impact uh, where you happen to be? Now, you might have talents that are not going to be easy to translate into where you happen to come from. But I, uh, but I challenge them to just, when they think about the kind of lives they envision leading, not necessarily just following the pack to get a job as a consultant or work on Wall Street, but where can their talents potentially contribute in an outsized way to the good of the communities where they happen to live? Right. Uh, and, and, and I've actually, I, I, you know, to, to the credit of a number of these students, they've ended up, I've had a number of students who've ended up going to either going back to their hometowns or going to similar kinds of towns because they were convinced that they could actually make a kind of contribution that would be difficult to make in a place like New York or Washington, D.C. You have a, a whole chapter on the degradation of citizenship. And I'm going to read again just briefly. The persistence 
absence of civic literacy, voting and public spiritedness is not an accidental ill that liberalism can cure. It is the outcome of liberalism's unparalleled success. There's something kind of, uh, I don't know if I want to say ironic or, or off to me about you know, groups that go around trying to get people to sign up to vote and how do we make it easier to vote? Um, you know, the, the, the kind of outpouring of protests that we've seen lately. Um, but here I, I can't get people to help clean up the park. Um, I have a hard time, you know, we at city hall have a hard time getting people to serve on committees here in town, committees that are doing like substantive, real meaningful work. How is this, uh, frustration that I have uh, with the, the 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 kind of you know community volunteerism, if we want to put it that way, uh, a outcropping of you know what what we've called here the the experiment of liberalism. Yeah, well, to go back to the very beginning of our conversation, I talked about how our freedom as individuals is secured by a kind of expanding role of the state and an expansion of the market. The more freedom of choice we have in the marketplace, you know, now now in the form of a global marketplace, uh, and the more we have a government that, uh, you know, a state system, increasingly an international state system, that allows us, you know, kind of the freedom to be individuals, you know, both the more liberated we are, um, but also the less control we feel that we that we uh, exert over those two, let's say those two mechanisms. And I think it's not just a feeling that we have, it is literally the case that the more expansive the state becomes, the more expansive the market comes, the more we, we as individuals or even as collectives, uh, the, the less th that we exercise a control over those, um, over those phenomena. So it's, it, we ought not to be surprised, for example, that it's very difficult to get people to come out to serving committees in their local town board because, you know, I guess in the scheme of things, people sort of draw the rational conclusion that it probably doesn't matter that much. Uh, you know, obviously it does matter in some respects, but I, I actually but would like, agree so with much, that. It yeah. doesn't, for the most part, it doesn't matter. That's yeah, one of the I mean, problems. Yeah. So much of our politics runs through Washington, DC. Most of your activity and most of your attention, if you, if you are have civic inclination, it's going to be focused on that. But what's, What's that going to take the form of? It's going to be more of a spectator sport than a participatory sport, right? It's going to be, you know, watching CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, you know, tuning into your preferred channel. Um, and then when it comes to exercising voice about these phenomenon, I think you just you hit the nail on the head. You're going to engage in protests, right? Which, on the one hand, you could say it's a way we exercise some form of political pressure. But on the other hand, it seems to me it's a real it's a it's a real manifestation of a kind of powerlessness, right? That the only way we can actually express our civic concerns is through a kind of participation in a mass, in this kind of visible mass of people, uh, you know, holding up signs and wearing certain kind of hats and, and yelling and screaming. But this, to my mind, is kind of the it's sort of the failure. It's a sign of the failure of of a civic life, which should consist in deliberation and debate and communication, given, giving and taking of reasons, rather than simply a mass collection of people shouting and screaming. You know, it's a sign of our relative powerless, our relative powerlessness in a, in a large and, and largely anonymous system uh, that this form of civic activity will tend to take prominence. I, I see a lot of cities 
local leaders, city administrators, mayors, uh, council members, what have you, that have started to refer to the citizens in their community as customers. And, and Don, this, this idea that like the customer is right and we need to serve the customer and, you know, let's have a customer friendly approach. I, I, what's your reaction to that, to that notion? Yeah, I mean, if you've noticed, I've noticed over a long period of time that uh, it's actually more common to encounter in newspapers, for example, in journalism, to encounter a description of the American people as the American consumer than as the American citizen. Right. right? That, 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 our, that, that which constitutes our essence is as creatures that consume. Uh, and as long as our politics provides for us the opportunity to consume, then our politics is functioning well. Uh, then we then we are in you know we regard our politics as in some ways successful. So it's it's not surprising that we would increasingly be regarded as as creatures that that consume. And I, I would I would go so far as to say this is one of the real manifestations of the failure and success of liberalism. Right, Lib- liberalism is by my description is if it's about making us into these self-making selves then the expression of our selfhood is in some ways by what we can accumulate or aggregate to ourselves, right? The, per, the pursuit of happiness as a kind of form of um, uh, the aggregation of things that uh, exemplify our selfhood. And, I, and it seems to me that this is, this is in some ways the culmination of the degradation of our capacity of thinking our, of ourselves as citizens, as, as um, somehow... Uh, engaged in the project, right? What's, well, let's think about the root of the word citizen. The root of the word citizen is city. It's uh, right. just as the, the root of the word politics is polis, right? Both of these words have at their root the place where we happen to be. And, and if we're not thinking about ourselves as in some ways a part of something larger than ourselves, then it's not to be, we're not to be, we shouldn't be surprised if we are increasingly described as, and indeed consider ourselves to be nothing other than consumers. One of the critiques, and this is where I'd kind of like to wrap up this, is giving you a chance to talk about one of the critiques of the book, which is, hey, you don't give like the five-point plan for how to fix this. Um, I'm not, I'm sympathetic to you, not to that critique, um, I recognize, and, and you call this like, you know, solutions are going to emerge. Uh, you paint some portraits of, of, you know, scenarios that could emerge from this. Here's the question I want to ask you. As individuals, as, you know, myself, people listening to this podcast, uh, others who want to see their communities uh, grow and become more stable and more prosperous and, and successful, what are the things that we can start to do to opt out of this liberalism experiment and get back to a, you know, a, a more, a more traditional, a more broad understanding of what it means to be human in a place? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that's been a recurring critique of, of my book is that it ends without, a, as you put it, a five point plan or a, um, a five year plan. <laughs> um, well, you, you actually it, ask people to think, which is really painful well, for there's that um, <laughs> in the first in the first place. I actually want to acknowledge that that we're in a difficult spot and to offer, you know, a kind of you know, easy. Here's the easy way out. 
um, I think would be uh, would be to engage in a kind of um, falsehood uh, that we have really dug ourselves into a pretty pretty deep hole. Um, it's also to recognize that I, at least uh, certainly at the time that I finished writing the book, that it seemed to me, as far as the eye could see, that that this this um, project of liberalism would continue, and so that one would have to, I think, as you put it one would have to think of ways that you could kind of opt out, out of this kind of comprehensive system that it didn't seem likely to be able uh, to budge or to, or to transform. I, I actually think since I finished the book uh, in roughly a year and a half, two years since the book has been out, uh, almost three years since I finished it, say what you will about the political, <laughs> the wrenching and difficult political times our contemporary world is facing, I see this in some ways as a kind of harbinger of a requirement to think hard about what what kind of new alternatives and a kind of opening to the possibility. Now, that, that opening is scary because it could be very bad, right? We could have really bad outcomes, you know, some form of really horrific um, authoritarianism. But the outcome could actually be potentially good, uh, that uh, things are a little bit up for grabs at the moment. And so, you know, there are some ways in which I... I and I think this is a, 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 a there's an opening to new discussions, and I think this is where the, my book really hit a moment um, to new discussions about uh, rethinking not just you know the, the party platform of one party or another party, but really fundamental and systemic assumptions that we have about ourselves and our society. Um, and I've been especially heartened by the reception of my book among young people um, who you know we older people tend to write off as you know, millennials who are lost in their cell phones. Uh, but it's really been uh, overwhelmingly, it seems to me, the response to my book has been young people who, who are really don't buy the party line of either of the main parties right now. And they're really looking for genuinely new alternatives. And many of them are very attracted to the idea of, a, of revisioning a society in which we do develop and cultivate some sense of mutual obligation and common good. And, and they're not interested in sort of saying whether this is right or left, conservative or liberal. They're really interested in sort of rethinking, I think, uh, a kind of conceptual and systemic way of thinking thinking forward. So I, I, I actually think that um, I may have been a little bit too pessimistic in terms of thinking that there wasn't uh, there wasn't an opening for something more systemic. And uh, in, in the in the book I'm working on now, I'm going to actually be trying to to work through some of that in a more systematic way. You've been listening to Patrick Deneen. The book is called Why Liberalism Failed. Uh, it was my number one book of 2018. I, I can't recommend it enough. It was very influential uh, for my thinking and, and really helped me connect a, a lot of the, the, the dots that were floating out there in my brain. I, I, I wrote down here, you help me understand the water we swim in. So Patrick, I just want to say thanks for taking the time to, to meet with us and chat. And I hope we, uh, hope we get an opportunity again soon to, to run into each other. Yeah, I hope that's the case too, Chuck. Thanks for having me. You take care. Thanks. Yep. Be well. Bye-bye. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story.
because they know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.